welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we look at streaming and Spotify, and particularly Taylor Swift's fight with Spotify in 2015, asking the question, why that fight and why then? Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. simplify the history of technological media by suggesting that prior to the 1990s there were two basic models, the telephone, telegraph on the one hand, and then on the other hand the printing press, radio, and television. The first model involved person-to-person communication. A person uses a telephone to call another person. Although telemarketing became a major, if annoying, industry, calling usually at the most inconvenient times to sell the receiver an item or a service, it remains a relatively poor means of advertising and sales, if only because you address one potential buyer at a time. The second model is based on broadcasting. Many listeners or viewers can tune in all at once and be exposed to your content and your advertising. And generally, the content serves as a vehicle for the acceptance of advertising into the home, a kind of Trojan horse. But aside from ham and CB radio, most broadcasts require a station that has a license and sponsorship or the expenses of a printing press. The uh, masses are reached. Yeah. But they're reached by corporations, or by the government. With the advent of the internet, which became open to wider public use in the early 1990s, these two models fused. The internet allows for a variety of one-to-one communications and a variety of broadcast-like modes of dissemination of information and entertainment. But the distinctions between these two modes, or these two models rather, erode. Of course, corporations still pepper sites with ads, And one person can email or video chat directly with another person. But now, individuals via tweets, blogs, posts, whatever, can also broadcast to many individuals, as many as they can get to visit their sites. And the corporations can behave in the manner of individuals, adapting tweet personas or more directly engaging consumers through customized ads and other means of engagement. Have you ever felt like your phone's listening to you? Because you get an ad about something you were discussing casually with someone else? Well, it is. And it's treating you in the guise of an individual. It's no longer necessary to have a printing press or a television station at your disposal to reach the masses. The information age has arrived. But it also revealed the true nature of information. Information is not free-floating fact, pure and immediate. In fact, the word information comes from Old French and ultimately Latin, informare, meaning to form into, to give shape, and most interestingly, to train. Information's not innocent, it's not self-evident, it's designed to act upon you, to shape you. The packaging of information is as important as the so-called content, and the lines between packaging and content, media and message, those are always blurred. With the arrival of so-called Web 2.0, the rise of more user-friendly and interactive web pages, came the prevalence of social media. 
The Netscape became increasingly vast, and search engines, most prominently Google, employed bots to navigate and chart its expanding territory. But like any navigator, Google doesn't provide a value-free map. It guides you toward what is most popular and what is most profitable. Facebook went public in 2004, making earlier uh, social networking sites obsolete. By 2007, it had 58 million users, and as of August 2022, it's closing in on 3 billion users. That is a greater population than any nation in the entire world. With its news feeds, scrolling updates on world events, its status updates, shares, and posts, Facebook puts out more volume of written information each day than the entire history of published writing in print media. The smartphones made the internet mobile, and now many people can live their entire lives basically plugged in. Social media operates through user-generated content. Most of what you are reading on those sites has been produced for free by friends and strangers, and of course, by you. This is mostly unpaid labor that nevertheless generates revenue. YouTube influencers and similar figures, they're the exceptions that drive the ambitions of many others. This allows corporations to offload a lot of work. Have you ever written a review on Amazon? If so, you're working in advertising or customer advocacy. Have you ever liked a post or a tweet? That's promotion, man. Have you ever written a blog post? You're a published author. Your pictures on Instagram make you both a photographer and probably a model. The internet economy runs on shares and likes. Virality, not veracity, not vitality, drives the flow of information. Attention becomes capital. Now, none of this is meant to be gloomy. The new social landscape offers both pitfalls and opportunities, but those opportunities, and for that matter, the pitfalls too, they depend on getting attention. Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, all of those other services, they all involve followers that have access to the content a user puts up. This radically changes ideas about social networks and ideas about self-worth. It's increasingly common to have intimate and close relationships with people one has never met sometimes people who don't exist in the way they present themselves. And I don't just mean catfishing. Usage of social media triggers dopamine, making users want to continue. But it also invites invidious comparison. A selfie is curated, but it seems like the other person's having a great time. We don't know. We just know what things seem like. And so what is becomes more and more what seems to be. Media used to be a way for corporations and celebrities to disseminate cultural products and information to us, but now we are fully ensconced in the media landscape ourselves. We are part of it. We're not just the receivers. And of course, all of this has a decisive impact on how those corporations and celebrities actually do their business, how they sell themselves to us by co-opting our own concerns with selling ourselves. Social media offers a way for emerging artists to garner attention outside of the traditional networks of record labels, artist management, and promotion. And yet, as is always the case, the traditional networks have found numerous ways to co-opt these new avenues to the dissemination of music. Services like SoundCloud, YouTube, Kindle, and Spotify allow artists to publish their own works without being signed to a label or a publisher. Spotify creates a platform for the dissemination of an unimaginably large library of tunes. 
right there at your fingertips. Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, they allow fans to feel incredibly close to their celebrity idols, to track their lives, literally, however curated those lives might be, on a near daily basis. The relationships among audience, media, and artists have been transformed and yet may be re-solidifying in a manner that serves those corporations even better than before. Let's take Spotify as our primary concern here. It was founded in 2006 in Stockholm, Sweden by Daniel Ek and Martin Lorentzen. Its service launched in the UK in 2010 and the following year in the US. Its base of users witnessed exponential growth since its first appearance. 11 million payers, paying subscribers in Europe in March of 2011, and then in September of that year, it doubled. By August of 2012, Time Magazine claimed the service had 15 million users worldwide and 4 million paying subscribers. By 2020, we're jumping over a bunch of the statistics, but by 2020, they had 133 million subscribers, and they're now closing in on 188 million subscribers and 433 million users in total. Already by 2013, numerous think pieces appeared in journals, magazines, newspapers, and television editorials asking after the ethics of streaming. And whether or not, in the words of Sasha Frere Jones, who was writing in the New Yorker in, in July of 2013, quote, this is the title of his article, quote, if you care about music, should you ditch Spotify, end quote. This was a question on many people's minds, and many of these editorialists, well, their answer was yes. Tom York of Radiohead and Nigel Godrick pulled several albums that they had collaborated on from Spotify, declaring that the service was a losing proposition for any artists who were not already firmly established moneymakers. They weren't worried for themselves, they said. This is, uh, you can find this on their Twitter feeds or I'm sure their archives somewhere. Um, and Godrich was the one that spent most of the time tweeting about this. Uh, but the idea was that he used the example of Pink Floyd, right? If you take uh, The Wall by Pink Floyd, that's generating uh, millions of streams and therefore generating a lot of money. But it's also music that's already paid for and has paid for itself over and over again. We're talking about a behemoth recording. No one needs, uh, no one depends on the income from that. Well, I'm sure people do, but not as much as when it was a brand new recording, right? So what Frere Jones is suggesting is that new bands and established but not as established artists are not able to generate real income from Spotify. And that's what Godrich was saying as well. Uh, Damon Krakowski, in a Pitchfork article in November of 2012, made the point that recordings have long been poor generators of revenue for any artist not in the upper echelon of earners. That was the lesson, by the way, of the 1970s, right? When uh, big corporations started putting more and more money into the megastars, into the the uh, Elton Johns and the Fleetwood, Fleetwood Macs and the uh, Eagles of the world, right? And they pour a ton of money into these albums that they knew would make a lot. This was basic economy of scale. The idea is that the uh, albums that really made money really made money. And you can take a, a risk on some of the others and see if they make it or not. So plenty of debut albums had a ton of money poured into them in the 70s and the early 80s. Uh, but the idea is that they, it, this would all be kept afloat by the big earners. 
right? So anyone but the megastars and those heading toward megastardom, they're not going to be making much money from recordings in general. So his point is not that recordings ought to pay better, but rather that they never really have and they never really will for most artists. And if digital streams effectively make music free, recordings becoming a kind of public good, and we're going to return to that argument later, then why not go all the way? Give recordings away for free and circumvent corporate behemoths like Spotify altogether. As he pointed out, they're not selling music, they're selling access. And why should they have the corner on access? The company, Spotify, has never actually turned a profit. It stays afloat the way so many corporations do these days, through speculative capital. The investments people who believe in the future of the company make in what must currently be regarded still as a failure, even now as I speak in late 2022. Back then, in, in 2012, I think, uh, Daniel Eck, the, one of the founders of the company, said, quote, The question of when we'll be profitable actually feels irrelevant. Our focus is all on growth. That is priority one, two, three, four, and five, end quote. Well, I guess it still is. And so if you read articles, the latest one that I've read is from October of this year, so just last month, you'll see that Spotify is still not profitable. And now it has investors, of course. You can, you can buy stock in Spotify. And the question is, how, much, how long before the bubble bursts? A lot of businesses work this way, right? They, they, they function off of the confidence investors have in it rather than the actual turning of profit. Now, let's leave that aside, right? It's a profitable business in the sense of speculation, not a profitable business from its actual earnings from what it sells, the service that it sells. But let's return to the artists, right? As York, Godrich, and Krukowski all pointed out, we're dealing here with an economy of scale. So yes, artists and bands that are either not established or have a large but not super large following, those groups lose out. Spotify pays a fraction of a penny per stream, somewhere between .003 and $0.005. In other words, uh, either a third or half a penny depending, right? So that means that let's assume we take the better of the two deals, right? Someone has to listen uh, to, to 200 streams to make a buck, a buck, 200 streams. Uh, something has to be played 200 times. And Spotify only counts things that get played for at least 30 seconds, right? Otherwise, the stream doesn't count at all. So someone has to pretty much listen to a good chunk of the song, People have to listen to it 200 times before you make a buck. And that's if you're getting the 005 number, not the 003, of course. Now, Spotify has different deals with different corporations. And that's the thing. The corporations are making out just fine, right? Because the corporations have many different artists. And how those that money gets divided up by the artists, well, that largely has to do with, with numbers and prominence. So the bands that and artists who are already making a lot of money will continue to make a lot of money from streaming. They're not really suffering. Uh, it's the smaller groups that are, are by and large getting ignored, right? Okay. So then what does that mean for the megastars? Because as we're going to see in the next segment, Taylor Swift basically takes her toys and goes home for a while. She removes her music from Spotify in 2014. So the question becomes why and why then? Let's turn to that.
In this segment, I want to offer a brief overview of Taylor Swift's tussle with uh, Spotify. What is it that she said she was up to? What is it? How did Spotify respond? The whole thing, right? And it'll be a relatively brief overview. There will already be a few interpretive elements here, right? And we'll go more into depth as to why I think it happened when it happened in the next segment. But I want to make clear a few assumptions that I'm making along the way that you may agree with, you may not agree with. But in order to understand where I'm coming from, you have to know what my assumptions are. My number one assumption is that Taylor Swift is an incredibly savvy business person, musician, songwriter, all three. She knows how to make a song that's highly tailored to her own voice and her own talents and to have a song that grabs your attention and holds it through its two and a half to 10 minutes, depending on on what song we're talking about, right? Well, the 10 minute one we can come back to uh, in the next uh, episode, and we'll see what, what we have to say about that one. But for the most part, we're dealing with relatively short songs that have a narrative trajectory that guide you through as a listener. And if you're involved at all in the in the song, then it's an engaging experience, right? As a so as a songwriter, she's got her her stuff together. As a musician, of course, she's a multi instrumentalist. She's a a producer. She works well in the creative behind the scenes part of things uh as much as in in the in front of the scenes right uh she has a sort of narrative structure that she builds around her career and that's part of what we'll be talking about a lot in the next uh segment right this idea of of how she depicts herself through what are sometimes called paratexts, the things that go along with the songs, the media releases, the videos, uh, the, the statements that she makes in interviews and so on, right? The image that she puts forth on social media, all of that is part of what is sometimes called a paratext, and we'll examine that. But first, and f- well, maybe not first and foremost, but certainly right alongside the others. She's a very savvy businesswoman. She knows what she runs her own company. She runs her own uh, her own artistry, right, in her own media presence, her own public persona, and that that takes a great deal. I think, at least in the way that she does it, it takes a great deal of forethought. And so, when we go through this narrative of of her tussle, as I put it, with um, Spotify, it's important to keep in mind that my number one assumption is that she knows what she's up to. That this isn't flailing about. That these are deliberate choices that happen in a deliberate moment in her career to foster what I'm going to portray in the next segment as a pretty important transition. And I'm not the only one, of course, to portray uh, the move from Speak Now through Red into 1989, those three studio albums, as, a, as an important transition. She herself depicts it that way, right? claims that 1989 is her move into a a pop-oriented aesthetic, and we'll come back to that soon. So let's look at the the trajectory here of her engagement with Spotify. In July of 2014, in an essay in the Wall Street Journal, she wrote, quote, Music is art, and art is important and rare. Important rare things are valuable. Valuable things should be paid for. It's my opinion that music should not be free, and my prediction is that individual artists and their labels will someday decide what an album's price point is, end quote. Now, there are several things we can take from this. First of all, notice uh, she tries to present it as a almost like a syllogism, as a straightforward, linear form of logic. 
music is art. If you agree with that, then you have to buy into the definition, at least that she's positing of art, which is that it is important and rare. What separates art from other things is its relative importance and its relative rarity, right? If you buy that argument, then important rare things are valuable. If you buy that, then valuable things should be paid for. So notice there's a, a kind of daisy chain here to this argument. We start with music as art. Art is important and rare. Rare important things are valuable. Valuable things should be paid for. Right. And therefore, it's my opinion. But of course, she doesn't really present it as an opinion. She presents it as a logical conclusion that music should not be free. Right. So if music is rare, like a diamond. Right. But of course, that's not necessarily true. Music's quite common. And music isn't a natural thing in the way that that originary diamonds are. Right. It's not a limited resource. Music will continually be produced. So she's choosing to view music as, as important and rare. But, you know, we don't have to agree with that, even if we care very much about music, even if we think that music as a whole is a vital part of human existence. That doesn't mean necessarily that individual pieces are all that important necessarily, right? As consumers of popular music, we often move from song to song to song. We might come back, of course, we often come back to songs that meant something to us previously. And maybe we have a sort of implicit or even explicit hierarchy in our mind of things being uh, on a scale of relative importance. And yet part of what's important to us about music, and so you see, we have to, we're using important in two different ways. The notion of important given to a singularity of a song and then important given to the notion of the process of music and listening to music. Part of what's important to us in music is the the ever new, the novelty of it, the newness, right? And so the idea that music is rare doesn't seem to me very convincing. And even it's the notion that it's important can have multiple meanings, right? It's also not true that valuable things necessarily should be paid for. Water's pretty valuable. You pay for a service to get water to you, but you don't pay for water. I mean, bottled water, of course, but in your in your faucet. And if you're lucky enough to live near a, a lake that has potable water, then you don't have to pay for water at all, right? You don't pay for air. Air is one of the most important things to you. You pay for air conditioning. You pay for various uh, means of, of, of changing the air and the air quality. But you don't pay for air. But air is of vital importance to you. You don't pay for gravity. But gravity is pretty important, right? Otherwise, you float off into the stratosphere. So it's not true that we only we always pay for valuable things. And so music might be one of those valuable things that maybe we don't need to pay for. I'm not saying this is true or not true. I'm just looking at the argument, right? It's also not true that a price point is simply set through individual decision, at least not in the long run, right? That's the basis of capitalism. Uh, the, the price point is set through supply and demand. Um, it's also not true that listeners necessarily buy albums, or most listeners, right? Either digital or physical. Already by 2014, that was no longer the case. More and more listeners were turning to services like Spotify and YouTube, and fewer and fewer were buying albums. Even if you look at iTunes sales of those years, you'll see that people were buying songs, not whole albums, by and large. Finally, we have to remember the swift benefits, as we've already pointed out in the last segment, from streaming in a manner that far outstrips unestablished or even established artists of lesser popularity. So we're dealing again with an economy of scale. Right. Taylor Swift, Beyonce, other megastars, the economics simply work differently for them. 
than for other people. Notice there's no attempt, at least at this point in, in her argument with Spotify, in the manner of Tom York and, and Godrich, to make a larger sociological point about haves and have-nots. Her, her main issue wasn't with the subscription tier, but rather with the ad-supported tier, where the royalty payments decreased and where people had free access to the music. They just had to listen to ads to get there. Now, the way a lot of critics that were supportive of Swift's argument took this is that she was laying a claim to the importance, obviously, as she, she says explicitly, of art and of the right of the artist. And so then we get into that very murky area of intellectual property, right? The idea that her ideas, her musical ideas, are hers, and therefore, if we want access to them, uh, we, should, we should pay for that access. But that has always been founded, at least in recording history, on the idea of there being some kind of product, some kind of material thing, whether that's a, uh, a CD or, or an album or what have you, that you purchase. As soon as things became digital, the waters got muddied and we move into the realm of service so that the thing we're paying for is no longer the music as such, but rather access to the music. Okay. Now, in November of 2014... Uh, she refused to have 1989, her, her album that was released in October of 2014, appear on Spotify service. And then subsequently, or shortly thereafter, refusing to have it appear, she removed her first four studio albums from that service. So her, her first four albums, up through Red, so Taylor Swift, Fearless, Speak, um, Now, and Red, had all been available. And now they're being removed after she refuses to have um, 1989 appear at all, right? According to Spotify analyses provided at the time by its CEO Daniel Ek, uh, Swift was set to make around $6 million a year on Spotify streams and had already made $2 million in global streams in the year preceding her move to absent herself from the, from the service. She said, quote, I'm not willing to contribute my life's work to an experiment that I don't feel fairly compensates the writers, producers, artists, and creators of this music. And I just don't agree with perpetuating the perception that music has no value and should be free, end quote. So again, this idea that music shouldn't be free. And also notice the, the idea that it's an experiment. <laughs> she doesn't want, uh, in 2014, maybe, I don't know that even by then you could really see it as an experiment, but certainly by now you, it's no longer an experiment. But of course, by now, her material's back on Spotify, and we'll get to that in a moment. In March of 2015, she put everything except 1989 on Tidal, the, the service um, run by Jay-Z, right, that uh, was supposed to benefit artists more. It was a service by artists that, that, uh, that serves the, the needs of artists. It's interesting that still 1989 doesn't appear, and I'm not sure exactly what to make of that. Uh, I'll, I'll offer some thoughts in the next segment. In June of 2015, um, music, Apple Music rather, uh, puts on a free trial period of three months, during which it's going to pay the artists no royalties. Swift writes, quite, I find it to be shocking, disappointing, and completely unlike the historically progressive and generous company, end quote. Well, from a certain point of view, three months free is kind of generous, but that's not what she means. She means generous to artists, right? And then she claims that this is this fight is, a la Tom York, York uh, about new artists. This is the first time where she really says that, that what she's doing is looking to protect the rights of artists that aren't on, on her level of success. Now, Apple relented, paid royalties during the free trial, and then for the first time, 1989 appears on a streaming service, Apple, obviously, uh, that month, that same month that they relented in, in June of 2015. By April of 2016, 
she's serving in commercials for Apple Music. There's an, an ad with her running on a treadmill and listening to a playlist called Jim Flow or hashtag Jim Flow uh, with the Drake Future collaboration Jumpman. By 2016, streaming was the major revenue source for, for music industry as far as recordings are concerned, as opposed to sales of CDs and albums. That's not taking into account where the real money was starting to come from, which was merchandising um, and to some extent live performance, but especially merchandising. By June of 2017, Swift's entire catalog is back on Spotify. Now, she claims that's because she sold 10 million real copies, hard copies of the album 1989, and that that was, uh, after achieving that, uh, she comes back in. Um, Spotify really didn't make any direct comment on it other than to welcome her back, right? I, I, perhaps to avoid gloating? I don't know. But part of the deal here was a deal that Spotify made with the Universal Music Group, which, of course, her um, she falls under uh, the aegis of that corporation. And the deal was that new albums could be kept off the free tier, the free non-subscription version of Spotify for up to two weeks, allowing it to allowing the, the newness of it all to generate sales of hard copies or digital downloads before it starts appearing on the on the streaming service. And by that time, Spotify was also uh, working out different deals with different corporations as to how much it was going to pay. And those different corporations are working out different deals with the different strata of artists as to how much they would get of that payment, of that cut. So you can see there's a sort of complex set of issues here. It's not entirely clear, unless you buy the idea that she was just waiting to hit the 10 million mark um, of 1989. There's, there's no clear sense as to why uh, everything was fine again in June of 2017. There, there were a few concessions made, but two weeks isn't that long to keep new albums off of the free tier. And probably they're not, she's not getting that much more of a cut from her streams uh, in 2017 than she was getting in 2014 when she stood to make $6 million. Of course, she's getting more now because there's more material now. And that may have been part of the equation. Again, I, I'm, I'm taking it for granted that she's an incredibly uh, savvy business person. And so she will figure out her bottom line a lot better than I can, not having access to those figures. But the question remains for me, why was it Right as 1989, uh, yeah, 1989 was coming out, why was it at that moment that she butts up against Spotify? What's happening in her career at that moment, which would make her desire a high-profile argument with an emerging corporate behemoth? Let's look at that now.
In the last segment, I said I was taking it for granted that Taylor Swift is a savvy business person and that she, in many ways, owns her brand and really thinks of how to develop it in the public persona, as a public persona. Now, I'm going to state a second assumption, and this is a larger assumption than anything about Taylor Swift all by herself, which is that any star, any celebrity has what uh, Elizabeth L. Sessor calls a star text of communication. In other words, what a star does is, what a celebrity does, what a, a, uh, someone that many people are aware of does, is they create, in essence, a kind of brand, right? That is more than just the product that they produce. So for an actor, it's more than just the roles that they play in specific films. For a musician, it's more than just the songs that they sing or play on or write. It's the interviews that they give, their appearances on late night television shows, uh, the videos that, that musicians use to accompany their music, the liner notes and the album covers, all the things that go along with, um, with the, the uh, actual output, what are sometimes called paratexts, right? Things that go along with the texts of actual performances it might involve other kinds of performances. And Taylor Swift, of course, is justifiably famous in part for her videos, these very elaborate, very interesting videos. And that's mostly what we're going to focus on ultimately as our pieces of evidence in this segment. And these paratexts and various statements in the media and Twitter, right, tweets and so on, these form what Elsesser calls a star text, a kind of narrative of who this person is and what they represent. Now, early in Taylor Swift's career, that star text largely involved authorship. In fact, some um, critics uh, and, and writers and journalists that are concerned with um, Taylor Swift's music, especially her out, early output, including, for instance, Alyssa Gardner, who wrote a chapter in a book called Women Walk the Line, how the women in country music changed our lives, and her chapter is called Taylor Swift Dancing on Her Own. In that article, Gardner really doubles down on the importance of Swift being grounded in her authorship. In fact, Gardner suggests that Swift went into or started uh, her music career in country music rather than pop music because of its emphasis on storytelling and authorship. That it gave Swift an opportunity to highlight the fact that she was the writer, or at least the co-writer, of most of her early work. And that this was an important part of, uh, this isn't Gardner's word, but Elsesser's word, of her star text of communication. That part of what she's communicating is that she's a young woman who is responsible for her own art. And who, therefore, kind of has a signature that underrates that this is from me. Even though she, especially on the early albums, collaborated quite a bit with figures like Liz Rose, that ultimately she is the, the true author of her work. Now, that's going to come into some kind of moment of contestation as she moves through the album Red, well, from Speak Now to Red to um, 1989. Well, why those, those three albums in particular? Speak Now is an album that was very um, famously supposed to be purely hers, right? That she was the, um, the sole writer on pretty much every song, if not every song, on Speak Now. And that was released in 2010. 2012, that album, Red, of course, has a few songs that are not only um, uh, 
produced and co-written with with other people. But that uh, one of those other people is Max Martin, right? The famous producer. In fact, some see him as being a kind of producer author, where, where really the notion of producing is authoring, is composing. Right. Uh, He is credited. He's a Swedish producer credited with really shaping at least certain aspects of the careers of figures like the Backstreet Boys and and um, Britney Spears and so on. This album, Red, features three tunes that were produced and co-written uh, by Max Martin and then another Swedish producer that goes by the name of Shellback. Right. And those three tunes are I Knew You Were Trouble, 22. And you are never, ever getting back. We are never, ever getting back together. So two of the the huge hits from this album are Max Martin and Shellback produced, right? And and Swift. Swift is, is credited as a um, a producer for uh, for We Are Never, Ever Getting Back Together, um, whereas Martin Shell, and Shellback are the producers for the other two. Uh, I Knew You Were Trouble is in some ways one of the more interesting ones, and we're going to come, come to that in a minute. So this is her first foray into pop music in a strong way, right? Before, it's not that she didn't have any pop music elements in her country albums, her first uh, several albums, right? Um, but here, we were, especially with the, those two tunes, I Knew You Were Trouble and uh, We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, uh, there's a strong step into pop music production and pop music composition. There are other songs on this album, like the title track, for instance, that are very clearly still coming out of the country's tradition. But many people saw this as an important shift. And then, of course, 1989 is basically an entire album of pop music with, again, um, Max Martin and and Shellback producing several of the tracks and then other producers as well. But all of them um, basically collaborations, right? The entire album. And so she even, Taylor Swift, announces that album as her first real step, her first fully committed pop music album. So what I'm suggesting here is if we're looking at at those three albums of Speak Now, Red, and 1989, we're moving from an album, Speak Now, where she's taking total ownership of the album, right? Uh, Where she is the, the main writer or soul writer of every track on it. And that's 2010. Two years later in 2012, Red has many songs that are by her, right? And, and you know, both Speak Now and Red also feature um, a producer, of course, that, that she works with uh, quite a bit, Nathan Chapman. But his role seems to be to recede into the background, right? And so she's really foregrounded, as we saw in the analysis of, of Alyssa Gardner and others, as as being the sole author. But now with Red, she's starting to give up some of that authorship to one of the famous male um, producer authors that really, in some ways, overrides uh, the people that that he works with, right? Or at least in the the um, critical. Um, perception of what goes on there, that he's the author of the tracks that he works on. And so when we have read and we have those three tracks, 22, We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together and I Knew You Were Trouble, there's this question of where is her authorship in that? And then, of course, that, that becomes even more important in 1989, which is released in, in October of 2014, right as we're having this feud with Spotify, or right as she's having this feud with Spotify. So part of what I'm suggesting is that the Spotify feud is a way of her exerting authorship, ownership of her own career 
as a business person when that ownership is being questioned by critics in, in the press and that she must have foreseen would be questioned by critics in the press with the release of 1989. And she, she must have foreseen it because of the reaction uh, to the song I Knew You Were Trouble. Now, what I want to, what I'm, so what I'm suggesting is that part of the, the impetus for the argument with Spotify is to assert herself and notice that she's always talking about the importance of art as valuable and rare, and therefore the artist is giving something to the world that is valuable and rare, and that she's doing that. So just as she may be seen by some people as diminished in her authorship by working with someone as powerful as Max Martin, right, and working in a genre that really diminishes female authorship especially female authorship, but really the star's authorship in general, right? Giving it, uh, giving the credit to the producers. Even Alyssa Gardner, by the way, makes this argument in her chapter where she says that pop music is usually less about songwriting and more about the, the song as a vehicle for production elements. Well, no one's more famous for that than Max Martin, right? Um, and so this idea that she's now, in a sense, working with the devil, right? And so she, so I'm suggesting that part of this move is to uh, against spotify is to buttress the notion that she has ownership over her own career when that might be called into question through collaboration with max martin now there's an interesting article that takes a similar tack uh on on things that are happening with um 1989 and that's an article uh, by, by an author named Miles McNutt. It appears in the journal Communication, Culture, and Critique uh, in 2020. And the article is called From Mind to Ours, Gendered Hierarchies of Authorship and the Limits of Taylor Swift's Paratextual Feminism. And in that article, McNutt argues that what, what Swift does in um, 1989 is she, in, in the, um, the special version of that album that's released by... Uh, or that one can buy through Target, is that she has three voice memos, which are basically recordings that she made in the studio or, or prior to going into the studio in relation to three of her collaborators and, and um, on that album, on 1989. And one of those voice memos is for the song, uh, arguably one of the better songs on the album, Blank Space, which is a collaboration with, once again, Max Martin and Shellbat. And McNutt claims that those voice memos are meant to show that she's still the main author, that what she's doing is she's coming into the studio with these ideas very well fleshed out, if not fully fleshed out, and then uh, as she herself says on the blank space voice memo, what what the other two are doing, what Max Martin and Shellback are doing, is they're shouting out production ideas. So the actual song is written by her, and the rest is, is these production ideas, superfluous to some extent, right? Now, another way of looking at this is by looking at the at the music videos, and this is what I want to contribute to this set of arguments that might be made. Uh, and, and again, McNutt's not making an argument so much about the Spotify debacle, if you want to call it that, the Spotify uh, tussle. His argument is really about why those voice memos are there and what that says about her notion of feminism, which we're not going to deal with here. My argument is, why does the Spotify uh, thing happen when it happens? And I think this ties into what McNutt is saying, that, that um, it, it does have to do with this concern with authorship, right? And that her authorship now is not just in songs, but in her career, and that she's standing up as an artist against a corporate behemoth. And I think this plays out to some extent in her videos as well. 
But there's something that interesting that happens if you look at her videos as we move from Speak Now through Red to um to 1989, and I'm sort of cherry-picking examples here, but I think it plays out if you look at, at various examples. Let's start with the, I think, interesting video from for mine um, from the album Speak Now. In that video, of course, uh, it's a sort of classic Taylor Swift song in all sorts of ways that we won't necessarily get into here. Um, in both its use of harmony, the way in which she voices different characters, she goes from being her own narrator to uh, having the um, the the object of her affection, then speak in her own words in the last um, chorus. So that the last chorus is a a quote of of his words, which are really just the same words she's been using as the chorus throughout. So it's an interesting song in general, but it's a good example of her. Um, her videos from that period where she's acting out uh, the scenes, uh, taking it very seriously. There's this sense in which she's the author of both the cinematic portrayal of the song and, of course, of the song, and in some ways the author of her own um, pseudo-biography, right? Because obviously the songs, uh, she doesn't, she's not actually married, so even the song deals with marriage, and so obviously it's pseudo-biography. But she's, in the song, she's even the author of her own destiny to some extent, that she meets this this man, but her way of dealing with uh, that story and, 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 of course, contributing to that story, there's a lot of her own authorship. She's not, she's not taking on the role of just subsuming herself into this romantic relationship. Right. And so there's this authorial control there. When you look at the song um, from Red, I Knew You Were Troubled, that's another very interesting video because in some ways it plays on the same tropes as the preceding videos from Speak Now, for instance, the one we just looked at, mine. Uh, considering it's very clearly a pop dance tune, it's a very serious video, almost hyper serious, almost too serious. It starts and ends with a voiceover that, that sounds tragic in its elements about that, right? I mean, you can take the idea of I knew you were trouble in a number of ways. I mean, she does say I'm lying on the cold, cold ground. Uh, clearly, she's upset about the the ending of this relationship and that, that he was never really any good for her right from the beginning. But at the same time, when we say I know you, I knew you were trouble, we can say that in a cute way as well, right? And so there's a kind of double-edged nature to this song. And of course, the pop elements, especially the dubstep elements, which were the most controversial elements of the song, plus into that. And notice how carefully they're used, right? This is clearly Max Martin and Shellback's contribution, as she acknowledges in various interviews, as Taylor Swift acknowledges in various interviews. But what's interesting is how it's used, right? The first time, it doesn't... The the, the thing that really marks it as dubstep is the wobbly bass and the, the heavy percussion. And at first, that doesn't come in to even the chorus until the end of the chorus where she's doing trouble, saying trouble over and over again, right? So it's saved for this moment where things really kind of get released. But then after that, it's a feature of the chorus as a whole. And so there's this way in which the production elements take up more and more of the song and more and more of our cognitive space in reacting to that song. And yet the video is still very much in this authorship model of, of Speak Now, right? This, in fact, if anything, it ramps it up. It's too serious. You know, that, and when I say too serious, it's not exactly a judgment, although that is kind of my judgment. I think that it kind of, it kind of in some ways, uh, is more serious than the song supports. And yet that's what makes it interesting to me, right? That she's trying to make this statement of 
of the authorship of the song, the authorship of the um, the serious nature of the underlying sentiment, and so on. And that that the dubstep doesn't undermine that. What it does is it brings out the urgency of the message. It's not a um, concession to pop culture. It's not her necessarily simply becoming a um, pop music singer. She's still an author, and that this is an element of that. It's an effect of her authorship. There's another video worth looking at from that same album, which is also a collaboration with Max Martin and Shellback, and that's, of course, We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, which is handled in a very different way. Um, there's an element of seriousness to it. Uh, it's Again, it's acted out this bad relationship that she's getting out of, and the guy keeps wanting to come back, and she's not having it, right? And there are moments that are clearly very serious, but there's a kind of underlying uh, silliness to it as well. There's a jokiness to it. Um, there are various moments of that. For instance, the line where she says, you, you know, there, you keep talking about this indie record, indie rock record that you find much cooler than mine, right? And there's a kind of wink and a nod to the audience. But also there are these people that are in kind of, um, uh, I don't know, they're, they're kind of like mascot costumes or like, I guess they're supposed to be pajamas, like in a pajama party, but they're of animals. Now, look carefully. If you know this video, think back or look at it again, and you'll notice that there's an interesting element here that, that might be, in some ways, rather subtle. Uh, at times, they're playing traditional instruments uh, that are much more prevalent in her earlier career, banjos, auto harps, and so on, country music instruments that are clearly signifying country music. None of those instruments are on that track, right? And then at other times, they're playing electric instruments. So to me, that video is transitional in two senses. One, it's, it's showing that she's moving out of the traditional country music um, element of her career where authorship is sort of assumed into a pop music realm where authorship is under question. But at the same time, she's treating it in a kind of light way. That that video isn't treated nearly as seriously as I Knew You Were Trouble. Now let's move forward to one more video, which is, is I think, interesting and it's the end of our little trajectory here, which is, of course, from 1989 and it's the lead single off of that Shake It Off. In that video, she tries to fit with various types of dances, um, hip-hop dance, uh, ballet, um, a kind of, uh, I don't know, modern um, techno kind of dancing. She kind of is dressed up a little bit in some and garbed that's reminiscent of Lady Gaga, right? And in each of these instances, she fails. She doesn't quite match up. Oh, there's also a cheerleading sequence, right? So in each of these, she doesn't quite make it. And she mugs for the camera. She laughs it off. She shakes it off. She laughs it off, right? And so there's this way in which she comes close to fitting in. She, she, she's clearly not without talent, but she's willing to take a kind of fall, you know, almost in the manner of, of say, um, Lucille Ball, if you want to go back that far to the I Love Lucy uh, sitcom, for our benefit. And in fact, the end of the, the video, she's with what I'm assuming are still actors, but they're, they're, they look more like everyday people. They're nerds and, and more commonplace type people, right? With glasses, their fashion's not quite as, they're not as put together as all of the professional dancers that she's been trying to fit in with before and failing, right? And so the idea is that she fits in with these people, that it's all a performance, that, that there are various performances here that are these glossy performances, and yet she's still somehow real in all of this and can relate to all of us, right? 
And so this is my my sort of potted history of what's going on uh, with her star texts as she's fighting with Spotify. That what she's facing here is an authorship problem. She's been renowned as an author. She's taken pride in that notion of authorship. But when you move into the pop music realm, where there are many more producers, many more elements that uh, don't fall under the authorship of a single person anymore, a single composer, that that authorship gets called into question. And that her way of dealing with it is various, variously uh, worked out. On the one hand, she's taking control of her business image. And that's what that fight with Spotify is. This is my guess, and I'm not even saying that it's entirely conscious on her part, right? Um, but I think that's an element that gets overlooked in the fight with Spotify. That her insistence on her artistry is an insistence on herself as a author of her own destiny and author of her own songs. And then the shift in the videos from what's clearly meant to be these short kind of semi-serious films for the videos for, well, even Mean, which has comic elements, um, but also Mine, which we talked about, and then um, uh, uh, I Knew You Were Trouble, that, that that then gives way with We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together and, um, and Shake It Off toward a comic element, a kind of lightness of touch. Right, a kind of wink and a nod that I know that not all of this is is that that things are bigger now than just my authorship, and yet I still retain not only uh, an authorship over all this, but a way of relating to you, a way of relating to people that are everyday people that I can look at lovingly and know that we still connect. And this, I think, is an interesting key to Taylor Swift's success that she manages to move into truly mega stardom. That she's in a, a level really above most other artists. And yet, part of that authorship has always been connecting to other people, to the kinds of feelings that other people always have. And this move into pop makes her at the same, at one, in one sense, totally uh, on a different level of accessibility, right? But it might compromise that other authentic self. And so now she moves into this realm of kind of, like I said, comedy that allows her to still be down to earth while being unimaginably and alluringly beyond our reach. 